And so kind of have to think about who's educating the society right now. It is not the generic medication companies that will get a $10 copay from you. It is a big pharma that makes $40,000 off of IVF cycles. And I said, hmm, I think women need better education and better tools. Hello and welcome back to Miseducated, where we tell stories about unlearning and the female experience. Hello everyone and welcome back to Miseducated with me, your host, Tash Doherty. This week we're diving into the subject of unexplained infertility with Dr. Amy Beckley, the founder and CEO of Prove. In this episode, she shares with us how her experience of having seven miscarriages fueled her to create the leading products in at-home fertility and hormone testing. She'll fill us in on how she brought this sorely needed Femtech product to market from a simple Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign, of all things. So, please enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Miseducated with me, Tash Doherty. Today, I am super honored to be joined by Dr. Amy Beckley, CEO of Prove, a leading company in the at-home fertility and diagnostic testing space. Her team has developed a simple urine test and app to help women understand their ovulation status and help track this leading cause of infertility, which is the quality of our ovulations, our egg dropping and releasing. And she got her PhD in pharmacology from the University of Colorado and founded Prove about six years ago in 2016, after her tragic and frustrating journey to becoming a mother, which we are going to learn all about. So, Amy, welcome to Miseducated. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Amazing. So you've had a very long and varied medical career. What originally inspired you to become a doctor? So it started when I was 16. I was having really bad headaches and I would get to the point where I couldn't leave the bathroom floor and I was just puking and the world was spinning. And my mom said, hey, let's go into the doctor. And he was like, well, it's probably just migraines. It's totally common. But just in case, let's cart you off 40 minutes away and get an MRI and make sure there's nothing going on. So we got in the car and we went to the MRI. I did not leave the hospital because I had a large brain tumor that was cutting off the circulation of my spinal fluid and causing me to have all this vertigo and to pass out and not be able to see. So I had a brain surgery the next day. And, and so from there, I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be a doctor. And so I went to school pre-med and I really wanted to be a medical doctor. So I, I volunteered in ER and being the volunteer that holds the guy's hands while they're doing stitches, I learned very quickly. I did not like blood. I did not like needles. <laughs> <laughs> so I quickly turned to what else could I do to provide access to medical care without actually being a doctor. And that was to be a PhD scientist or a doctor doing medical devices and research like that. So it was just that that desire to go above and beyond and provide really amazing care to people because I felt like I had to pay it forward. Wow, that's such an amazing story. And so you went on to do your PhD thesis on TGF beta signaling and breast cancer progression and metastasis. So 
seeing how breast cancer can progress to the lungs and like finding ways to prevent that from happening. This is me, me, the non-scientist trying to explain what you do. You also got an MBA from Kansas State University during that time, where you worked as a research assistant professor on vaccines against infectious diseases that can threaten our food supply. And then you also worked on like other amazing projects, like reconstructing the diets of animals. So as you're going throughout your career, how are you picking different medical problems that you wanted to work on? I mean, honestly, it was the cool factor. Like as a cell can have a signal that tells it to be senescent or not grow. And then something happens and all of a sudden that same signal now causes it metastasized to the lung. Like what is making it do that? Or like infectious disease, what causes a vaccine to work to prevent illness? Uh, so I just thought it was very fascinating. And so I just like doing cool stuff. I mean, science is just so cool. <laughs> Even when you were working on these issues, did you ever think you would start a femtech company focused on fertility? Like, did you have any idea that was going to happen? <laughs> no, <laughs> zero, zero percent chance. It was not even in my head at that time. It was just like, I know I want to do something cool. I know I love researching. I knew that I wanted to do something impactful. So a lot of times researchers do amazing stuff and they publish all these amazing papers but there isn't that person that's going to take that cool research and make a product that actually helps, right? So like the breast cancer stuff, I was doing really cool research, but I really, really want to do was create that product, right? And so like that idea of how do I improve the quality of life with a product based off of the research? But no, I had no idea it was Femtech. Totally. And so in 2016, you ultimately founded Prove. And I would love to know why you decided to start this company. Well, it was something I personally went through. I went through very long, strenuous years of infertility and miscarriage. And I just saw that the system was broken, that women were basically left on their own with no resources, no education at all. I mean, I was a PhD level scientist that was on birth control for 20 years and came off of it to try to have a baby. And there was this whole set of education that I had no idea about. I had no idea. And then I did have miscarriages and to go into the doctor's office and them to tell me, oh, it's normal. It can happen. And then just tell me to go back home and try again. I was like, no, this cannot be it. <laughs> so that's what I really got passionate about was really changing the face of healthcare and the fertility journey and understanding about a woman's menstrual cycle and how it can impact her ability to thrive and to conceive. Right. And you say that you had seven miscarriages in your life. And I'm just curious about when each of those was happening, did you feel angry at the beginning? Were you like defeated at first? And then you started to become more determined about doing something about it or like I can't even begin to imagine the rollercoaster of emotions that that journey must have been. Yeah. So my mom likes to tell me that I'm very stubborn. And so I, this is absolutely me being stubborn. I felt more frustrated with healthcare and that I had no resources. You do go through the emotions like it's hard, like miscarriage and infertility is the same diagnosis. It affects your mental ability as cancer or an HIV diagnosis. So it's one of the worst things that can happen to a person to go through this. And so, yeah, I had all those emotions, but never once did I feel like giving up. I just felt like this was a challenge. It was a puzzle that I had to solve. 
and that no way was I going to let it beat me and that there was a reason this was happening. I was going to figure it out. I was going to make it better, but yeah, had to, had to get through it. I wasn't going to fail. I wasn't going to let it beat me. Totally. That's like sheer will and determination, which is like so, so admirable. And I mean, how did you keep everything else in your life together as these things were all happening? Like you were, you know, holding down a day job and then also like getting interested in this issue that you were having and like starting to do more research about that. What was that phase of your life? It was hard. I mean, I remember going through fertility treatments and it being the middle of the summer and me wearing these god awful big hoodies. Everyone go, Amy, aren't you hot? And I'm like, no, 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 it's really cold in here. And in my mind, I yes, I was really, really hot, but I had to hide all the blood draws and all the things like the tape marks and stuff on my arms because I was going in for multiple blood draws. And I didn't want people knowing that this was happening to me because you you feel like, well, I can't get pregnant. You feel like it's like your duty in life to be a woman. And if you can't do it, then you're obviously not a woman. And it's just the weirdest thoughts that run through your mind that I could not tell anybody. But I did have online communities. And so getting support from UTC Bunny 23, who I had no idea who that was, um, just <laughs> somebody else. <laughs> yeah. To just go through it and and share that experience that didn't know me personally. And that was the best definitely got me through. And so you ended up doing IVF. What was your decision and experience like around doing that? And then eventually you went on to conceive naturally. So there's two very different approaches to fertility issues right there. Yeah. So my son, who's now 12, is an IVF baby. He was conceived after the second cycle and he was very hard to conceive. I kept having loss after loss and nobody knew what it was. I got all the tests run on me. Everything was fine. Textbook. And so I was given the diagnosis of unexplained infertility, which is the worst diagnosis you can give to a scientist because there's obviously a reason. You just don't know what it is. <laughs> and, and so basically they said to me, they're like, we have no idea what's wrong with you. And so we, you could either keep doing what you're doing and it's a low chance of success, or you can do IVF. And we just basically, it's a big medical bandaid. And so instead of figuring out what's wrong with you, they bypass everything and just make it the highest chance of getting pregnant as possible. So I was like, yes, let's do it. <laughs> and so then when I had my daughter, I was like, all right, I am going to figure out what's wrong. I'm going to be my own guinea pig. And I'm going to have those conversations with doctors. Like, what are we missing? What didn't we think about? And so in a series of conversations, my doctor was like, well, we just don't have a good enough diagnostic test to see if you have enough of the hormone that supports pregnancy. So that hormone is called progesterone. When you ovulate, release an egg, your ovary makes this hormone called progesterone. And so the role of progesterone is to prepare that uterine environment for implantation and to nourish it that entire nine months. And I said, I just don't think I'm making enough progesterone. Like I'll make enough to get pregnant, but I think my progesterone just drops too soon. He's like, well, we don't have a good diagnostic test for that because we only measure it one time in blood. I'm like, okay, well, if that's my theory that it's too low, can I just have it can we just skip the forty thousand dollar ivf expensive part and just give me the twenty dollar copay medication that i can take by myself he's like yeah sure there's no studies on it but it's not going to hurt anything like it's a natural hormone great so we did that we did time in our course plus this medication and within two months i was pregnant i stayed pregnant 
and my daughter's nine. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it was like so simple. Why aren't we talking about this? And so kind of have to think about who's educating the society right now. It is not the generic medication companies that will get a $10 copay from you. It is a big pharma that makes $40,000 off of IVF cycles. And I said, hmm, I think women need better education and better tools. And so that's why I decided to found proof. It's over the counter. It's, it's FDA cleared for home use. Like you go buy it on Amazon, you go buy it on the website and you do it at home and you get the information and then you can advocate for yourself to the doctor. And so reducing the red tape, hopefully reducing the amount of IVF cycles that people need and just letting them know there's other options available. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's such an American problem, like, oh, a health issue. It's not something that we help you solve. It's something that we can make money off of. Like even with the all the Eli Lilly and the Twitter jokes about insulin, it's like progesterone as well is like one of the most common hormones in the female reproductive system. And also they're only testing you one time, right? It's like they, we're on a monthly cycle. Hormones vary throughout the month. Like this is these are the series of things that we've already been taught about our own system. So I'm so, so surprised. And so then you decided to kind of go into the research, right? And you found some studies, a particular study from 1989. What did you find in that study and what surprised you about it? So it is actually published in 2013. And basically the whole paper was like, we know this new urine marker of progesterone that can confirm ovulation. And it'd be a great way to understand if a woman's ovulating producing enough progesterone after ovulation and it's non-invasive. All we need to do is create a home test, period. <laughs> and so I'm like, all right, it's 2013. Where is it? This was 2016 at the time when I read this. And so I did what all scientists do. You email the author. You're like, hey, where's that test you talked about? Because I would love to help you commercialize it and get it out there. Um, and he said, well, that was research from 1989. And told me the story about the company that funded the research had presented this to the FDA and said, okay, we have this really cool test. It tells women that they're ovulating and we can help time intercourse, get people get pregnant and know if their body's ready for conception. And the FDA basically shut them down. And they said, women don't need to know this information. It's going to be too expensive for you to do the studies and the commercialization. We don't think it's a good viable product. Um, and so the company basically reorganized and dropped their women's health division. And now they just do infectious disease. And so they're not doing anything in women's health anymore. And so when I talked to him, he was like, I would love you to do this. And so we collaborated to get more data to actually commercialize a test because it had been dropped by the wayside because it didn't matter and that women didn't need this information I said, well, I think they do. So <laughs> I'd like to try. <laughs> oh my God. And also it's like a urine test. And I mean, it's not like you're drawing blood even. So why are so many women banded into this unexplained fertility category, do you think? Because we don't have a good set of diagnostics out there. I mean, somebody had the Instagram post out there. It was like 93 reasons why you're infertile. Because it's such an intricate process from the egg being formed and the ovary supporting the egg's development and like the sperm and how it has to go fertilize it 
and then all the chromosomes have to line up and like it's just so many things can go wrong that we don't have good diagnostics for a bunch of it and so that's why you know we'll we'll pick off the easy ones and then the rest is just unexplained what was shocking to me is that the number one cause of infertility is an ovulatory issue which did not have a diagnostic out there i'm like what (laughs) right so prove is essentially a progesterone test that you can take you can also add medications and stuff from your doctor what other kinds of diagnostic things are you interested in developing alongside this progesterone test So we are all urine-based testing. We don't do the god-awful finger prick. So we use first morning urine. We measure hormones and we do it multiple days during the cycle to see patterns, understand, is it a healthy ovulation? Do you have sustained levels? And so we pair with a companion app that guides women when to test, what it means, it reads their values, it creates reports. It's like an ovulation report card, we like to call it. But it really tells women what to do, what's coming next, what they can do to support ovulation health. Um, so we started off with PDG, which is the progesterone metabolite in urine we, we measure. We've expanded to monitoring the entire cycle. And so all four hormones that rise and fall throughout the ovulation. So basically, it's like this intricate dance of hormones. And so we have a, a kit called Complete that monitors that entire cycle from start to finish. And so we do that to understand are there any fertility issues preventing conception, but we really want to expand this to general women's health. I mean, the cycle is your fifth vital sign. It's important for bone function, memory function, beauty aspects, like your hair, your nails, like all this stuff. And if if things go wrong, it can cause PMS. It can cause hair loss. It can cause osteoporosis. (laughs) I mean, the cycle is just so important and having and maintaining a healthy cycle can help a woman thrive and be more productive and more energetic and unlocking the power and using it as our superpower and not their crutch. Yeah, I love that. Um, so I think any kind of information is interesting and empowering to us as we're going through our cycles. Like even the cycle health issue, this is really important when women hit their 40s, so I'm 42 And like when you hit 40-ish, you start to get like a couple hot flashes and your period just goes crazy. It gets heavier. It's non-existent. And a lot of it is because it's that first signs of perimenopause. And so we went to this conference, we talked to a bunch of doctors and we're like, wouldn't it be cool to measure hormones during this period to help women understand their bodies? They're like, we don't do hormone testing. It's too difficult. It's too hard. We can't get the right information. So we're just going to treat them with bioidentical hormone therapy. What doctors know are blood tests. Your blood test is a single snapshot. You don't understand what the hormones are doing and how they're fluctuating. And so it's like, well, we have this system that measures it in, in urine and we can map out the entire cycle and see what's going on. But what we find is women love it. They love seeing all the data, all the time points, because they find it really fascinating. And so we've, we've shifted away from, okay, you don't want to, you don't want to do hormone testing. That's fine. We'll just let women do it themselves and then they can advocate for what they want. But yeah, I think it's great to break some of those basic assumptions about how we want to address our health. Why don't you ask women what they would like instead, FDA people, and then maybe you would actually have some more monetizable products on the market. 
So yeah, I'd love to switch gears a little bit. I have a bunch of random questions. So when you were going through this whole experience of building this company, you had a very heavy background in science. And I'm wondering, what was your experience like getting your MBA and like deciding to build a business as well as being a scientist? So so getting the MBA was a byproduct of my experience and, and wanting to turn it into a, a business. I had infertility when I was doing my postdoc. And then I got a faculty position doing vaccine research. And I always had this idea in my mind of like, what am I going to do with this? And so as being faculty, I was given tuition credit so I could take one class at a time. So I did it at nights or during my lunch break. And I just took an MBA course to understand how to create a business and all the capstone as we were fine, what we we're going to do how we're going to market, how you're going to price it, like P&Ls. Like I learned all the basics to, to form the company. And then in December of last year, you raised a whopping $9.7 million for your Series A. That's super impressive. How did you keep your business alive and kind of growing without any funding? Yeah, so <laughs> that's a great question. We basically were like, all right, we want to start this company. Where are we going to get money? And so typically it is, you have your own money, which we didn't. Could you get a bank loan? No. Could you get investors? No. We didn't even try. It was like, who's going to fund this like two scientists in the middle of Kansas doing something crazy. And then the other option was crowdfunding. So Indiegogo is a platform. It's kind of like Kickstarter. And we just built marketing materials out of PowerPoint. I mean, it was really nothing fancy. Put this pitch together. It was like, here's our product. Here's our idea. We need this much money to make it a reality. And if you buy it, then we will make it. And so we launched it. And then we started talking to a bunch of different Facebook groups. And we found a couple groups that were like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I've been looking for one of these tests for like ever. Absolutely. And so we got funded within 48 hours after finding that group. That is so sick. And you... Oh, yeah, this is written out in Mexican pesos, but I'm guessing this is like $40,000 that you raised yeah. in the Indiegogo campaign and you set out to raise $30,000 and you got over 600 backers as well. Yeah. You know, what's really cool is that one of those original backers is now our employee. No way. So, yeah. That is awesome. I love that you're bringing them into the Peru family. And so you've got, I love these, these gifts that you have as well. You have like the actual tests for any early bird who wanted to buy them. Anyone else out there who's thinking about making a a cool new femtech company can launch a campaign like this and actually get real testing from the market to see if people want the product or not. So that's awesome. So the first, I would say 287 backers that we had, they got tests and then we asked them to enroll in an optional IRB study. So we got about a hundred of those nice. where we could get feedback from them. And we could fine tune it. So we did our clinical validation studies from the people that gave us the money. So basically women paid us to validate our data, which is a really interesting model. Um, the biggest piece of advice I would give to founders that want to create something, invent something is to listen to your market and to adapt and to make the product what they want. A lot of people think that Indiegogo is like one of those things where like, all right, guys, we're going to push the live button and then everyone's going to like flood to our listing and buy it. It's not the way it goes. You need to have your own marketing and your own channel to traffic people to your listing. And so we didn't know that. We like started it and then it just sat there. It's, there's a little bit of a game that goes on where 
the, all these marketing companies were like, oh, for only $20,000, we'll market your campaign and we'll do this and that. We ultimately didn't do that, but I can see how you can get sucked into those kind of things. So it's important to know, to have an email list already set up, to know, to talk to people in, in Facebook groups, to know that you can post this, what your marketing strategy is going to be, because it won't go anywhere unless you're driving people traffic to that page. And so like for us, we had to have $40,000 to make our first lot. Like we had to have that much money. So I couldn't give 20,000 of it to a marketing agency, um, but you can build that in. So if, if I, we needed 40, we could raise 75 and we can have the rest as money to market it on Facebook or whatever that we needed to do. So just to have that in mind, because we did not know that. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a chicken and egg with the marketing thing. It's like, oh, well, if you want people to spend money, you have to spend on ads <laughs> and get your social media presence and everything up. I mean, you can't easy. you can't sell a product that nobody knows about. Totally. Raising awareness is like super important. And now I just have a couple wild card questions for you. Are you concerned at all about population replacement levels? Like, do you think humans are having enough babies or like what's happening with that? Yeah, this is my soapbox. So yes, absolutely. The The number one crisis we have with the economy is inability to reproduce and replace our working class. Number one, you're seeing it in China where the aging population, they had that one child policy. I actually went to Japan. They invited a bunch of femtech companies out there to talk because their birth rate is so low that they're really going into crisis mode and they want better innovation, better ideas because they don't support families to have babies. They tell women you either have to have a career or you have babies. You cannot have both. It's like, that's ridiculous. I mean, it's just inflation and the cost of childcare, the cost of IVF. I mean, like everything is stacked up against that people like millennials are like, forget that. I'm just going to be childless and I'm going to travel the world and not have to deal with all these things. There's no incentive anymore. There's more incentive to not. <laughs> I really think countries have to pay more attention to it. Otherwise they're going to be in a really bad position. I mean, there's like economists that are like tracking it and they're like mapping it out. If US wants to stay on top, they have got to tackle this issue now because if they don't, like 30 years from now, you're like, we're going to be underneath China, which is not what we want to do. Yeah, I already see that happening. Like my mother had four children, but like within my generation, that's basically unheard of. I mean, I'm thinking if I do want to have a child, it's going to be at least a million dollars because I want my child to be able to go to a college. So there's nothing in the world that's signaling right now that having a child is an easy thing to do. Although it is interesting how in a lot of Nordic countries like Iceland, Finland, they have actual like maternity leave projects and a lot of more dedication and focus towards women's resources especially iceland like if as a small island nation it's like you have to keep the population growing otherwise that's it so maybe they feel a, a bit more strongly than the u.s or other european countries even yeah i just don't think they're paying attention to it just yet like it's one of those oh we'll just think about it in 10 years when it becomes a bigger issue Hopefully that doesn't bias her on to the next question, which is if you could wave a magic wand and have one scientific problem solved in the world, what would it be? So I kind of alluded at this earlier with was like, there's so many things that can go wrong with fertility and we just don't know what they all are. I've always been like, okay, if I can invent this really tiny scientific camera that can go in your ovary 
and could like see everything that's going on. It can like follow the egg down and like ultrasound machines don't even know if an egg was actually released because an egg is so small and then, and then fix it. Like just an egg microscopic level, cell level (laughs) camera, basically in an ovary. Love it. Absolutely. And from your experience, what are some of the other areas where we need more researchers like focusing in terms of solving problems and especially like within women's health? So this is really popular right now, which is like inclusion. So like all the scientific studies are done in men because we don't want the addition of women's hormones to make our data messy. And so we have to use male because they don't have a cycle. We don't have to control for the cycle. And so there's this huge push to have more women in research and more inclusion. And I agree with that. But what's interesting is that COVID was what, like (laughs) two years ago, a year ago. And so like for the COVID vaccine trials to be able to qualify to be in that study, you either had to be a male, you do menopausal or be on birth control. And so they didn't have any of the women's cycle information in there. And so when the real life happened and people started getting this vaccine, these women noticed huge swings in their menstrual cycles and they're reporting all these side effects. It's because they didn't study the menstrual cycle. If you're going to give a vaccine to this population, you should have this population represented. Totally. Yeah. I mean, we are doing research studies where we're doing what's called observational studies, which means we let the data happen and then we ask permission to see their data and then map back what happened as opposed to, all right, I'm going to do two groups. One is control, one is this, and I'm going to like make sure everything's the same. They're all equally represented and you're not this, you're not that. So all these screening and have these arbitrary groups. We just let life happen and then come back and analyze the data. And so we've gotten rejected by multiple journals because it's not a properly controlled experiment. I Mm. said, yo, it is life. These are real people, (laughs) real situations. But it was incredibly hard to get research like that published. Yeah, that's super interesting. So I also read an article about your reproductive data because basically you guys obviously have a lot of like very highly sensitive fertility information about the people who are taking these tests. And so in the wake of the Roe v. Wade decision over the summer, you decided to switch from Amazon to like Google Cloud and it had to do a lot with Nevada. So could you talk us through like what is the issue around women's health data in this sense and what you decided to do about it? Yeah, so when they overturned Roe v. Wade and it become an issue where the states could decide whether abortion was legal or not legal, one became increasingly concerned with their data, where if you were sitting in a state that banned abortion, you can get your data subpoenaed and they can use that and against you to show that you went to abortion clinic or whatever else. And so we were asked by our consumers to ensure that their data was theirs and theirs alone. And that was something that we've done since day one. Our data is encrypted end to end. It's secure. We do not share it with advertising for location data or anything like that. Like our revenue stream is the test strips, not the data we produce in the app. And if we do a research study, we will ask women and we will pay them if we're going to use their data because it's their data, right? It's the only natural thing to do. And so we always try to keep women's data secure. We have what's called a kill switch on our app, where if you are done using Approve, you're pregnant or you whatever it is, you're done, 
you can go in and you can delete your account. That deletes it off of all of our data. It doesn't have a record in our system. It's just completely gone. And so when Roe v. Wade came up, we realized that the way Amazon works is that the data could be stored in a state and we couldn't control what those states were. It was kind of random and it could be in a state that banned abortion, maybe not now, but maybe in the future. I don't know. Um, And so we turned to Google Cloud and they use what's called a serverless system, which is they're constantly moving data and they have pieces of data here and here and here. And so there's no one database that you could draw upon. I think that's like a really great foresight thing to do. And what advice would you give to your younger self or a girl finishing college today? This is a tough one. I think I've learned that when you grow up and when you're doing what you're doing, you're just thinking, oh, everyone does the same thing as as I do. Oh, having seven losses. Oh yeah, absolutely. Everyone's just going to found a company off of that, right? And so what you realize is that not all people react the same to certain situations. And so what has driven me and allowed me to create a space is being stubborn, refusing to fail, knowing what you need and going to get it, right? So I don't know how to build a company, but I know that I can get tuition credit one class at a time. Why don't I just do that and learn what I need to know? And then I still didn't have a right amount of business experience. At least I knew what I needed in a person. So I could just go hire that person, right? So making sure that you're passionate about something, you have the drive, you don't give up, you be scrappy, you find the resources. Like we talked earlier about Zoom, right? Cool. Let's not pay the premium. Let's find another way. (laughs) You got to be smart and strategic and you can't just follow the path that everyone's on. You got to think, all right, what can I do that's different? that could help me be successful. And if you're not smart, surround yourself by smart people. Know your weaknesses, know what gaps to fill with who. So in terms of what you're interested in right now, are there any books that you're reading or anyone whose work you're really interested in or he's currently inspiring you? Somebody commented on one of our posts about like, oh, prove is junk. Like my reproductive endocrinologist told me that this was just a scam, a ploy for my money. And he knows better. He's Harvard educated. I'm like, yeah, and you're also paying him $40,000 for IVF. So <laughs> you got to understand where your your advice is coming from. And so whose work do I love? So we have a, a fantastic group of REs on our side that are phenomenal and they're cutting edge and they're doing virtual care visits and they're pulling people away from IVF is the only option. Dr. Amy Avazade is one of my favorites. She has a couple podcasts slash like YouTube. It's The Egg Whisperer. You can find her. Ooh, okay. Uh, Dr. Amy for short. She's fantastic. She like tells you exactly what it is. We have Dr. John Park of Carolina Conceptions, Josh Klein from Extend Fertility, Dr. Gary from Fertility Cloud, which is a virtual clinic that can treat women Mm -hmm. with ovulatory disorders like over the phone for like $260 a cycle and not $20,000 a cycle. And so we found our tribe of people that are just trudging forward in the sea of like these dinosaur men that don't want (laughs) to. So there's another piece of advice is don't take no for an answer. Just find different people to hang out with. (laughs) Totally. I love that. And 
also I one last question but you've spent a lot of time in your life in the Midwest right like all of the different research and institutions and everything how has that been do you find it's your place it's your home where you can focus on your science or like what is it like there I've never been to the Midwest before So this is actually a funny story. So I spent the first 23 years of my life in California. And when I graduated, I was like, get me the F out of California. I need to go do something new. It was so hard. Like everything was just like competition, competition, competition. And I was like, I want a family. There's 0% chance A, I'm going to find a man that is not ridiculous. And B, I can (laughs) afford kids in California. And so I left, went to Denver, and then met my husband in Denver, went to North Carolina for postdocs where I had my son, came back to Kansas, and now we're back in Colorado. But I love it. Like, people are more collaborative. Yeah, that's awesome. Yes, I've lived mostly on the coasts. I lived in Pennsylvania, but that's still, Philadelphia is still on the coast, basically. Uh, But yeah, very, very cutthroat environments. And American work culture is, like, very hardcore. Yeah, yeah. Work hard, play hard, right? (laughs) Yeah, totally. So did you have any other questions for me? No, I mean, I just love that you do this and you provide this space for women because, I mean, I have a nine-year-old daughter and I asked her school, I'm like, do you guys do any type of sex ed? They're like, no, we don't. When they're in fifth grade, we tell them what their period's going to be and that's it. I'm like, oh my gosh. (laughs) So like, just I mean, knowing that I can help educate her, but it's broken. So I'm glad that there's forums like this to help women be educated the right way. Thank you. Yes, that's what we mostly focus on. <laughs> I don't know if I, if I would feel comfortable for a nine-year-old to listen to the podcast, but I actually don't know what age would really be. I mean, it's we talk a lot about sex. We talk a lot about different women's health issues. So do you have an idea of that? Like, like what is appropriate to talk about with a nine-year-old, you know? I don't know. Like internet is here and it's not going away. Social media is here. I mean, kids know things. And so it's hard because you can either as a parent ignore it and and think that it doesn't exist and like, oh, not my kid. Or you can embrace it and you can start having those conversations and this and that. Like my daughter's going to get period underwear for Christmas and it's going to be something that she unwraps in front of the whole family. And it's not going to be something that you're ashamed of. It's going to be, this is gonna happen and this will make it better because guess what it might happen at any time during the day and you're prepared and like educating my 12 year old son that this is gonna happen to his sister like so if you make it more of a conversation like think about it the people in college that totally go off the rails are the ones that were so closed off couldn't have candy couldn't have alcohol like none of that stuff and it's like no just teach them and teach them moderation like you can't have them underneath your wing your entire life but the earlier you start educating about certain things I think the better yeah totally and I want period underwear for Christmas (laughs) exactly well Amy thank you so much for your time and your words of wisdom and your passion for science it was like super great to get to talk to you and yes can't wait to keep in touch yeah thanks so much for having me You're welcome. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Miseducated. You can find out more about Amy and Ruth in the show notes of this episode. Stay tuned for another episode of this show and we'll be back soon with some more awesome stories from inspiring women about unlearning and the female experience. Bye.